From Central Source and the Fifth Element Podcast Network, this is In Search of Source, a celebration of the writers who are saving music journalism from death by clickbait. My name is Ryan Gore, and I'm a writer at Central Source. Uh, on the website this week, you will catch a Why You Like It from me, and you'll catch, fingers crossed, if Connor wakes up in time, um, <laughs> my <laughs> piece on Otis Mensa. By the time this comes out, my profile on Otis Mensa, uh, which I'm super proud of, and I worked really hard on, so yeah, check that out. Uh, with me today on the podcast, we have Joshima Wadira. Hello, I'm Joshima, and... I'm the newest member of Central Sauce, and I'm working on some cool things with the team, which hopefully you'll see in the next few weeks. And I'm also the music lead at Brown Girl Magazine, and we have new playlists, so go check out some cool South Asian artists. Absolutely. And also joined by Mickey Hellebeck. What's going on, everybody? It's Mickey. Um, I just released uh, my first ever digital cover story with James Blake on Euphoria Magazine, which I'm wildly proud of. And if you want to go check that out, please do. Uh, and then I also just released a really cool, I think, uh, feature interview uh, with Frack, who is a uh, MC artist uh, out of the Bay Area. And he just released his new album, B-List Celebrities, on uh, Zion I, who is a legendary Bay rapper's independent label. Um, so yeah, check that out too. And I also want to fully vouch for Ryan's Otis Mensa piece, which is by far my favorite piece he's written thus far. So good. So good. Thank you guys. <laughs> uh, I want to say that I'm also extremely proud of Mickey's James Blake piece, despite not having any hand in its creation at all. I will be taking it as my own creation. <laughs> We're really proud of Mickey. Um, Yeah, we're all very proud of him. We're all really proud. (laughs) So today in the podcast, we have pieces about uh, where SoundCloud goes from here. The definition of here will be explained. Uh, We have a piece about how how much albums are worth in 2020 and an interview with Mark Batson. But before that, Mickey, what have you been listening to? Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, most recently I've been listening to the Xavier Omar album. I think that was of my favorite drops this past week. Also, not going to lie, I've hit repeat on that new Ariana Grande single about 25 times. And also the Omar Apollo album is really amazing too. So everyone named Omar, nice. Everyone named Uh, Omar. This is embarrassing because I haven't heard Ariana's new singles, so I will get on that. But there's a local New York City singer named Abe, and he has a song called Habibti, which is predominantly in English, except for the use of the word Habibti. Um, But I really enjoy it. It's very much like coffee shop, fun, romantic vibe. And then there's a Pakistani producer I've been obsessing over whose name is Dalal Qureshi. Qureshi? I hope I'm saying that right. Um, but hopefully we'll have an interview with him on Brown Girl soon. But you guys should check it out. Super vibey, good to work or party to music. Oh, awesome. I need that because I should be writing more. <laughs> uh, in terms of what I've been listening to um, and what we need to plug that we haven't plugged yet is the uh, Christina Lee interview that we just released on Friday. Oh, yes, sir. Please listen to that. And if you listen to that, you'll hear her talk about the new Open Mike Eagle album and me talk about the new Open Mike Eagle album because it's amazing and I love it. 
Also, I just today listened to the new Homeboy Sandman album, which was entirely produced by Kode Chris, and I thought that was great too. And uh, I've been listening to the new James Blake EP, which is mm-hmm. like really the most UK album he's done so far. Mm. I think yeah. it's it feels very grown here. Like I love Assume Form. I have the final there, but um, it seems. Like, he was influenced by your Metro Boomers, by Travis Scott. So, like, you know, he very much brought those guys in. And that EP feels a bit more going back to the roots, kind of. So, yeah, that was great. Okay, then. So, let's throw it to Joshima. Could you intro your piece? Absolutely. Okay, so my piece is, again, by another female journalist named Soumya Krishnamurti, who actually was my first exposure to South Asian women in anything media related so she's been around for a really long time but i think my favorite thing about this piece it's called can soundcloud rappers can soundcloud survive as rappers depart for more profitable streaming services and the reason i picked an older piece for this episode is this was written in 2018 but i think the references are insurmountably relevant right now Mm. especially because we're dealing with probably the quickest turnaround of platforms we've seen with things like triller and tiktok monetizing music or sync and instagram in um adding music features so i'm really curious to see what everyone has to say today about how long someone needed to be on soundcloud soundcloud why can i say that soundcloud (laughs) um and also the genre that has become soundcloud rap is that still a thing? Is it a starter platform where you just build hype there, you get a cult audience, and then you become a rapper at large? Or is there truly, like Samya and some folks at SoundCloud describe, a SoundCloud rap sound? Yeah, well, Joshua, me and you, before we started recording, kind of talked about this and how I uh, I didn't realize when I first read this that it was a 2018 piece, but it made sense because of the Ugly God <laughs> references and in interviews, who, to me, just totally exemplifies what SoundCloud rap sounds like in that era for me, because I feel like he was the first true SoundCloud rapper that I like got hooked into the sound. And he even talks about it in the piece, and she uses really good quotes uh, to talk about how he specifically, even at that time when sound, when you know the idea of being a SoundCloud rapper was becoming a little bit, well, just not as cool as it was when it first happened, that he was still going on there and releasing music through SoundCloud. Um, but it just felt so organic to him specifically. Uh, it just felt like home. Like when you heard him on SoundCloud, it felt like that was the place where he was meant to release music. Um, which I think was just a, a really cool thing for her specifically in the piece to capture, like who just was kind of capitalizing off of the platform, which is not like a thing to shade, but it is just like, you know, this this kind of platform started to happen and they were using it versus people who really kind of found a home there. I felt that kind of strung throughout the piece and I thought that was really cool. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of my favorite things about this piece at large is it's the last time I think I've read something that did a really good job criticizing a couple of different things in the new marketplace of music. And by that, I mean, she touches on what responsibility it is of streaming services like SoundCloud and Spotify to support individuals or artists doing extremely questionable, controversial things in life Mm -hmm. and how that Mm -hmm. affects their music and artistry. They talk about how it's cool to be in this nascent stage. I think on the last episode, I harped really hard on how Kathy described certain things. Um, 
And the reason I'm so obsessed with how journalists write is hip hop never gets talked about that way, right? Like when we think the word Absolutely. nascent, it's always something science or startup or fintech oriented, but music is an industry and deserves the same kind of accreditation and description. So they talk about like early adopters and the cult audience you adopt on SoundCloud and how that changes and how good things aren't kept a secret. So I'm curious, what do you, th- you both think um, is the responsibility of a streaming service like a SoundCloud since there's really no rules, right? It's a free-for-all, there's no label, there's no anything. Yeah, it's super difficult because the main appeal of SoundCloud was that you could just go on and throw your music on with no barrier, no checks to go through, you know? That's kind of its why it became so successful, why it was a breeding ground for all these new artists coming up and these new sounds that didn't have to be approved, right? But I, uh, it's difficult yeah, because... You should. The music is just the art, right? And if you're a platform that's just displaying art, do you have a responsibility to not police the artist, but um, consider the personal life of the artist? Um, What I think was a decent move was Spotify removing certain people from um, curated playlists. I think that was, and that's something that um, Samia mentions in the piece, that's something that got a lot of backlash, right? Mm -hmm. But I think the reason I got backlash is because the listeners themselves weren't deciding who they were going to listen to. Spotify was kind of deciding for them that you're not going to discover this artist, right? And I think that's where the problem is. I think, I do like the idea of that, of like having something in the way before you get to the artist but the way they did it was just a bit rash mm. I think there should be if you if you find the artist and go on their page there should be some kind of like I guess disclaimer like uh, the thoughts and views of this artist do not reflect that aspect, <laughs> like, or, or something right. ridiculous like that I don't know Yeah. but that is a, obviously I'm not entirely sure you know it's a very tricky issue yeah yeah, uh, Mickey, what do you think? Uh, I just, uh, this this question, I feel like I've talked about many times on just kind of my own time with friends and things. It's I feel like it's always such a difficult question to to totally answer. And for, I mean, the first thing it makes me think of is, sorry to reference my own piece, but James Blake, specifically when I talked to him, and I mentioned this at the end of the piece, said he just as a, on a personal level could not separate the art from the artist. Like he didn't understand yeah. how people actually did that. Um, but to me, at the end of the day, it really comes down to uh, a personal choice on some level. And I think you can kind of apply that to platforms, just like people have the personal choice whether they're going to decide to listen to an article, uh, an artist whose uh, music doesn't align. Their personal kind of choices don't align with your personal values. You can choose whether or not you want to listen to someone. I think I think platforms have a right to kind of decide for themselves whether or not they want to do that. Um, I, but as far as like, is it right or wrong to do something? I, I think again, it just comes back to you as a person have a choice whether or not you want to listen to them and not. I have to hold these companies accountable to do something about it, to like take these artists down from their platform. I think it's a little bit of something where I feel like 
and, and I'm going to quote her. So she says, there's a palpable sense of community between the rappers and their fans too. Like old school chat rooms and message boards, there's something uniquely freeing about being a young fan behind a computer. There's no hierarchy or velvet rope to make anyone feel less than. Everyone is welcome. And I think that is hip hop culture, right? Like that's yeah. some of the most sought after environments and relationships that all of us love from like Karma Loop and downloading on LimeWire and Napster and MySpace forums and whatever i think that landscape is very conducive to this audience but i do think right if they were promoting ads of a certain artist or like spotify taking an artist and almost acting as like a label partner and doing billboards in times square or something like that i would really struggle with if they did with artists that are overtly problematic um in in their livelihood Mm -hmm. now that being said outside of that if you're a free-range platform that does not limit anybody or boost anybody based on certain things then it's up to the listener, right? We're all voluntarily consuming something or not consuming it. Hmm. Well, then that goes back into the the conversation we had on our last podcast, Jeshima, about like play. We kind of dove into playlisting a little bit, and that's kind of a specific thing of like I just I just don't know exactly who if the platform itself runs the playlisting or there are separate people who run the playlisting on Spotify. Um, I think that's kind of an interesting thing and in how like it plays into the actual playlisting. So that's that's where you are saying you think they have should kind of make their their I don't know about political but personal statement on what they view. I don't as. know if I think I would apply that to playlisting because it depends why and how you playlist, right? right? So if you're playlisting purely based on popularity and streams, then whether I like it or not, technically you should be playlisting the people that are getting the most streams and are most aligned with that playlist right um but when i say like ads or you're choosing to boost a creator or Mm. if like let's talk about this in a youtube sense if you were like okay well we're going to make this content related to suggested to content because it's getting good traction as long as they can justify that their metrics aren't biased or that the way that they're doing it is just like this person then i guess maybe that's more ethical in the last episode we talk about with elliot how bts has these insane streaming numbers but we don't see them on charts Mm -hmm. so even if we didn't like their content or their personal I think fundamentally, maybe there's something wrong with artists that are getting a lot of, I don't know, I'm ethically and morally conflicted here, deeply, deeply conflicted. I think giving, giving someone's music is a less than ever before monetizable vehicle. Now their lifestyle is more monetizable than their art form is. But I do think there are some principles that become questionable, right? It's like the R. Kelly situation. Does his music make royalties and who redeems those royalties, right? Or, or does it not? And it still gets to live and is consumed, but there's no profit from that. So this is where I run into like this whole web of, I have no idea. <laughs> what do you guys think, think about... Oh, go ahead. Sorry, Ryan. No, no, no. no. Let's move on because... Uh... Yeah, carry on. <laughs> Um, I was going to say, what do you think about the artists mentioned in the piece? And do you think their careers are still relevant? And what's changed? <laughs> well, I mean, if, just to go back to my first example, I think uh, I it has been about since 2018 that, uh, that I've heard much from Ugly God. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't, I, not that, I mean especially he had that kind of run that they were kind of talking about with uh, the few songs mentioned in the piece. Um, But then, yeah, since then, I don't know that I've heard that much from him. I think, I think, but I think it depends on what circles you go into because I've definitely um, 
I'm trying to think now of the, I'd have to look at the piece again, the, the group of artists, uh, the, like, I feel like they're based in California. There was like a specific Ryan, you go ahead and I'll, I'll try to find the name of that. <laughs> no, I was just going to say that in the article, there was a clear distinction between artists that, um, owned the SoundCloud rap name and the artists that immediately tried to shed it. Mm. And I feel like the artists that immediately tried to shed it were less able to be pinned down and were more able to evolve with the times that move past SoundCloud. So, in a sense, you know, the article mentions Lil Uzi, and people still love Lil Uzi. For sure. Um, but at the same time, Ugly God, he was someone who just said, no, I'm, I'm a SoundCloud rapper. SoundCloud is where, like, I was given this massive boost, and I'm going to stay there, in a way. And which kind of might have put nails in the coffin, in a sense. Um, but at the same time, I don't really keep up with... <laughs> many artists of this ilk right. so I'll I, I let Mickey speak on it a bit more I know well that's kind of what I was saying and this is taking a while to load so I won't even go uh Shoreline Mafia that's what their names are but yeah I it's funny that I think that's kind of a good example though is because like do I personally listen to a lot of Shoreline Mafia or are they in conversations that I have with people? Not necessarily. But when I'm kind of like scouring the internet and seeing different people talk about different things, I'll see like people who are legitimate kind of talking about Shoreline Mafia drops if they're in that space. So I think, I mean, that's the real thing that SoundCloud created, right? And what she talks about in the piece is the specific space that SoundCloud rap created. And I think there's a version of that that still does live on even for these artists that um, aren't necessarily in my conversations that I'm having. Yeah, I think one of the cooler things about SoundCloud is, and, and Ryan or maybe Mickey, I don't know if either of you have heard of them, but there's a South Asian twin brother R&B duo called Moonlight. And they were discovered on SoundCloud and their life literally changed almost overnight, right? Mm-hmm. And so... Yeah because they were discovered by someone working with someone's label on SoundCloud. And I think there was a period between 2007 and maybe 2013, the seven years at SoundCloud became this place where you could amass a ton of people without worrying about if you were covering something or a copyright or a slew of other uploading things, that it became the place for new music discovery. So while I may not be on there as actively, I think that it might still be a place for people to be discovered and where labels and industry people are actually still scouring the internet. And SoundCloud plays are still an accolade, right? Like you can still come to someone and say, I've had this many plays on SoundCloud, just to, I guess, verify that you're good at stuff. Oh yeah, I still see <laughs> and it. And I know in, for sure. Yeah. I still you see it in bios, you see it in EPKs. Yeah. And now yeah, like in New York, there's like 10 out of 10 still underground parties that happen from pure SoundCloud audiences. And I almost <laughs> wonder if it's like, that is a real music lover, right? If you're on SoundCloud, there's really no other reason for you to be there other than because you're addicted to discovering this undiscovered music almost. But I think I think we can close on this, but I do really like this statement because if I ever had to describe what a SoundCloud hip-hop sounds, hip-hop sounds like or rap sounds like, she says, there isn't a straight definition for SoundCloud rap. You just know it when you hear it. The music is lo-fi, inundated with unpolished synths and stripped down beats. And I definitely hands down think that is the sound that comes to my brain when someone says, oh, I found them on SoundCloud. 
yeah. I'm like, oh, that's what it's going to sound like. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I said Bet again before rap. we started recording, I just, I just think that the epitome of SoundCloud rap is I beat my meat by Ugly God with the iPhone <laughs> ringtone sample. Like, that is exactly the first song that I think of every time I think of the sound. Yeah, that's true. And then I guess um, some, someone at Warner Bros, one of, one of the things they said in the piece was anything that shows promise is being snatched up, which I do think is true, which is crazy because we have more platforms than we've ever had before and more socio-ethical conversations happening that we don't know how to navigate. But basically, yeah. if you're popping somewhere, someone's looking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we, the only thing we haven't really talked about is how much SoundCloud uh, influenced other streaming services. Like, I, I don't think before SoundCloud that Spotify allowed artists to download directly to the platform. I think that's like a huge thing that the actual streaming services have had to adjust because of how easy, easily accessible, which she talks about a lot in the piece, SoundCloud actually was for artists to upload their music. That's so true. I didn't really, I didn't think about that. Yeah, and that's kind of why SoundCloud got left behind is because everyone else caught up, Yeah. but SoundCloud never progressed with them. And like SoundCloud Glow, SoundCloud is hard. SoundCloud Go never really like took off, and you have things like Bandcamp now. Where you can just upload your music, yep. as like and have oh you can buy it right here, and you can buy my merch right here. Oh yeah, you know that interface is just so miles ahead of what SoundCloud are doing. Totally, I think so, Bandcamp specifically. Yeah. I think Bandcamp actually may have been around even before SoundCloud, but do not quote me on that. But I think that <laughs> because of the reach of SoundCloud, Bandcamp became a much more accessible kind of yeah. thing or pe- thing that people were even more hyper aware of besides super, super underground indie artists because it was like, oh, here's a platform that's just as easy as SoundCloud to upload, but you can also get paid. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's interesting. And the whole full circle moment of what is ethically the right thing to do, I did see at the end of the piece, I had forgotten about momentarily, but they talk about how Pandora and other outlets did pull R. Kelly from their playlist and then decide to go back or not go back and whatnot. But you start to think about like, SoundCloud, I, I think there was a statement from someone, I'm not going to quote who because I, I don't quite remember, but they said that um, SoundCloud was like this place free of politics. And I almost disagree in a sense because I feel like SoundCloud was the antithesis to industry politics, making it in its nature oh, yeah. political in a sense because it was all these people that were told or felt or didn't have access to the other platforms and made a sound that maybe wasn't universally appreciated at the time or didn't have the type of livelihood that was conducive to it. So I don't know, but I don't know. Mm-hmm. That's my answer. What do you, I want to know what the listeners think. So whoever's listening yeah, to this, write in. what do you think? Tweet Le- me. Leave us a comment in Apple Podcasts. Let's banter. <laughs> <laughs> uh, before we move on from the piece, I want to talk about something like just a little technical, I guess, like crafting a piece kind of thing. And it's about showing rather than telling. And I think this is a masterclass of showing rather than telling. Like the best thing is being able to understand the journey of SoundCloud through the words of the artists who benefited from it and the people who were involved with it. And she did a great job of editing them and sequencing in a way that created this strong narrative that you were able to follow through the piece. It was like her just like kind of conducting an orchestra, just knowing exactly when to add that little quote and throw in this one to create the narrative. Mm. So I thought that was great. And I think the intro is my favorite part from a technical standpoint, because I think writers that do a job of um, connecting intergenerational hip hop and rap references make it Mm. such an inclusive read. So when she refers to the tunnel as a venue here and refers to it as being the pantheon in ancient Rome, 
again, I think it's like writers that write about hip hop and rap that way are part of the elevation of that sound and that community that never gets, never gets described that way. But also that she's setting a precedence of these are folks that maybe a lot of us and folks that are older associate with a certain status. But now I'm about to talk about all of these artists that you may not have heard of. You might know, you might not know that have equivalent amounts of audiences or notoriety in this marketplace that maybe not all of us consume. Yeah. It's a real sort of way of like combating against like musical classism yeah. in a way. I thought it was incredible. Yeah. Okay. So that was Can SoundCloud Survive as Rappers Depart for More Profitable Streaming Services by Samya Krishnamurti. I hope I said that right, even though I put on, I put on the accent every time. I can't help myself. <laughs> <laughs> and that was for, that was for XXL. So the next piece we're going to talk about is from the New York Times and it's by John Karamanica and it's called How Much Is An Album Worth In 2020? $3.49, $77, $1,000, maybe $0. So uh, this piece was released a few months ago and it uses the event, I guess, of Rap Ferrero, one of my favourite artists and someone you would have seen me write about, uh, putting his vinyl up on his website for $77 to have a discussion about like what an album's worth in general and he explores the standpoint of Rap Ferreira where he says I should be able to value how much I think my art is worth but obviously audiences he got some backlash for it because people expect a vinyl to be $20 and a CD to be $10 and mp3s to be free right um, <laughs> but he also explores how nowadays music isn't the thing that's being sold by artists how it's a gateway into merch and shows and how streaming has devalued music and how Bandcamp has this model where people pay how much they want for it and all these different things flying around. And this is that kind of piece where I look at the title and I'm like, oh, they're going to try and answer that question. <laughs> you know, just like Josh was talking about the other piece. Yeah. Th- this whole topic gives me that feeling of, I don't know. Like, there's all this stuff going on and I don't know. Um, <laughs> so like, how much an album, quote unquote, like should cost is something I've really like thought about but can never reconcile all the different elements too and I love this piece because of just how bold it is in answering that question and because of the, of the various perspectives you can get from it and all the different conclusions you can draw you know the mere fact that the article isn't just saying oh art is simply un- undervalued or it's simply too expensive rather than to take that approach you like he manages to showcase all those different viewpoints and strategies by artists. And I think that's what I took from the piece myself. That's the conclusion that I drew. is like, let the artists make their own model and just go from there. People who can pay for it will pay for it. If you can't, you can still listen to it. You know, I'm sure you have Apple Music still. You can still listen to it on Spotify for free with some ads. Like, it's still possible. And... To, to me, art is an abstract thing and it's going to mean different things to different people and I feel like its price should reflect that in a way rather than just having everything be 10 quid or 20 quid for a vinyl. So yeah, I'll, I'll throw it to you guys. What do you guys think of this piece and the idea of 
music costing things. <laughs> this was probably one of my favorite reads I've read in a very, very, very long time. Um, I think as an artist manager now, I have a much different view on it than I might have as just a music consumer before. But he says, I didn't start rapping because I liked folding t-shirts or something oh, to that effect. And I think one of my favorite things about that <laughs> is... First of all, if you are a super fan and you're pissed that he monetized his music, you're not a real fan because we don't get mad at people when they launch a makeup line or a clothing line or become TV show hosts or actors and actresses. It's like the Disney effect, right? Like Ariana Grande, Demi Lovato, Selena Gomez, Justin Timberlake, all of these people started as Disney child actors, amassed an audience, became musicians, amassed an audience, and then went into beauty and lifestyle because they had enough of longevity to get ahead of those things and monetize on the current landscape. But when artists that make real music that we love do things like price their music at a way that makes sense for their livelihood or to prove a point or to sell something that is music oriented, we're suddenly so critical because they've made something that we in the marketplace assume should be free or extremely low cost something that's higher cost but it's their art would we ever go to a painter and be like that's an absurd rate for your red line on a white piece of paper no (laughs) because depending on whatever that little card says next to that red line on a white piece of paper that might be the hottest shit on the block to have yeah i was (laughs) i was gonna talk about that that same quote and what it reminds me of uh is just the way the article's structured really hit home for me because I don't know if you all I'm assuming on some level because we are all journalists y'all think that a similar way that I do is in we are very heady people and we over analyze analyze and over analyze things to death and I personally have one or two friends who do not do that and they kind of sum up a life philosophy that I've been dwelling on in like one sentence And they're really good people to have in my life. And I really felt like that's what that last quote represented. It was like, okay, we're doing all of this analyzing. Like, what is this? What is the reasoning for this? And he was like, why? I don't want to sell any fucking t-shirts. Like, I'm a rapper. Why would I want to do that? And I just thought that that was really clever, um, clever structuring. And it it was a really good way to end the piece. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I think they quote, they get a quote from Steve Carlos, Carlos, um, But he talks about how the intimacy is no longer music-oriented between a fan and an artist, right? It's that music has become this expectation and the beginning of an equation is what I think he says. And it used to be Mm -hmm. the outcome of the equation. And now it's sort of like this social media became the place where you connect with artists. But I do, maybe I'm like being an originalist or a traditionalist in this respect, but I do think there used to be something about when you wanted to see an artist in person concert or see that coveted interview that they did if they don't do interviews a lot. It was because you were able to see a part of them and experience them through their music. Whereas now I could literally hate someone's music and consume them all the time in 10 different ways on 10 different platforms. And then the music still gets plays. And so for me, I do think that's a weird thing. But on the flip side of that, for the artist side, who, who are we to say what is good music and what isn't good music? But artists don't get paid for their music. And so I don't know what else they would do besides commoditize their celebrity. Because I know firsthand, like you're paying a manager, you're paying a label, you're paying a publicist, you're losing fees, you're in splits, your masters are publishing your royalties. So where is the money, especially if concerts were decreasing in attendance pre-COVID, then you take a year of no gigs off the table for everyone. Where do they make money? Yeah, exactly. And like, it's different for every artist because 
In the piece, John mentions how an album needs to cost at least three dollars forty nine to count on the charts, and from the chart, as long as that, that's like a little, uh, a little gate that you open in order to get your chart numbers, which in turn gets your merch numbers, which in turn gets your show numbers, and then that that gets you appearances on all the late night shows, and that's how you get your money. No, that's how you get your notoriety. Therefore, the music is like undervalued, but that's not going to apply to someone like Rap Ferreira who isn't that kind of artist who isn't going to get on the charts and because of that general devaluation devalue is that a word devaluation sure yeah yeah shakespeare made up words i can do it too i'll take it (laughs) um because of that devaluation of music someone like rap rarifies and finds himself in a position where he's just trying to buy a house and music is his job and so he's prizing his his mute vinyl the way he needs to in order to buy the house that he needs to buy to raise his family you know so it's gonna we need to appreciate that different artists are in different positions and people do things for different reasons Mm -hmm. you know ariana grande's single is isn't gonna be marketed the same way rap ferreira's album is because they have different goals like and you talk about nipsey hostel in the piece he's the best line in the piece that I thought that John wrote was um, Hustle understood that the physical album was no longer a music delivery system but a proxy for fan enthusiasm yep. all this stuff is just a way to get fans excited and to invest in you totally. as a person and they'll do that regardless right one of my favorite parts of the piece uh, too which relates directly to that Nipsey quote uh, Ryan is um four paragraphs from the bottom where Ferreira, he, uh, he shows that he got the idea literally for doing it from how his fans were already buying the physical copies of his CDs. And he call he calls them, um, tal- like they were treating the, the physical copies as talismans. Like they were all, they were actually mm. valuing them higher than what, you know, physical copies of music were valued before because the access to them online is so easy for people. So he was like, oh, if if my fans are already valuing them higher, like buying multiple copies of the physical copies because they mean so much to them, why am I not capitalizing off of that? So it's not like he was just like, well, I just don't, I think he, they do a good job in the piece and saying it's not even just as cut as dry as like, I need this money. It's like, No, actually, because of the way of the industry, these physical copies have naturally become more expensive items. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think, you know, it's sort of this, like, history repeats itself, trends come and go kind of thing. When we think about, like, Doc Martens and records, like, six, seven years, ten years ago, right? Why was it so trendy and coming back? And they could have just minted more records and more shoes and sold them, and they would have been the exact same thing. But the charm of something vintage or timeless or exclusive is that whole logic of if you truly love something, the way you show you're a fan is by having that ticket to that concert or having that original record or music lovers love to see the inconsistencies in voice or the vocal cracks or the errors in productions that are eliminated when things are overproduced or edited online. And so it's crazy that any artist receives backlash on that because clearly he sold out of all 1,500. So 1,500 people love him enough to pay almost $100 to have this record. And I think that's great. That's a very women, yeah, women lie, men lie, numbers don't. <laughs> yeah. 
you could be mad, exactly. you could be sad, but yeah. someone bought it. Yeah. Yeah. And like, it goes to something that the representative of Bandcamp was saying where someone bought an album <clears throat> for $1,000 just out of their own goodwill. Like, it was choose your own price. He could have said $1. But because he, people want to support the artist, they want to support the art that they love. When you grow that connection with it to the point where it's that intimate and you have the disposable income, apparently, uh, you can just drop $1,000 on the album and that's just a show of your fandom, really, isn't it? Yeah. So there's complaining at an artist for valuing their art at a specific price that doesn't match with your financial situation or with your willingness or your idea of what an album should cost. It's nothing to do with you. Like, yeah. you know. And you know, I always thought I would see a piece that would explore something like this concept as a criticism of when artists give in to extreme luxury goods or brand partnerships mm. that don't make mm. a lot of ethical sense. Maybe it's like, I won't, I'm not going to give explicit examples, but there's plenty of artists whose like music says a very specific messaging and so do their interviews. But then the sponsorships and the brand deals they do are extremely different to those, to that ethos. And so I see a lot less criticism of that. But the second someone tries to monetize their music in a way that seems inaccessible or unfair, we criminalize them. And I I think it's like what Mickey said. Sometimes it's what if that artist is a millionaire and like a tech exited and has not does not need the money, but just wanted to value their art at that level. Why do we criticize music in that way and not fashion and not? I'm sure people do. And I just don't pay attention to it. But (laughs) why are we so critical of music? I'm feeling very defensive of music. Oh, yeah, we should leave musicians alone. Well, I, I, it's no, not I, just do, de- I do think it's a unique thing. Yeah. It's not just music. It's defense of musicians who we admire gaining money from their music. Like, I think we should feel fucking defensive. Like, dude, go make your fucking money. And here's this I, is, yeah. yeah. When go, I paid go. $12 for a weekend ticket and I saw him in Arizona with his band, I turned to the person that I was with, I was with my brother, and I said, you know, this band, how do they make enough money to survive for these 12 people that are playing in a band in an orchestra behind him. Hmm. And you know, know, each of those people, like you may have spent your whole life training instrumentally or vocally or rapping or whatever, but like current hours to make new music, you spend hours. So we don't want to pay you for your experience. We don't want to pay you for your hours. We want you to give us your product for free and then we're mad at you. Oh yeah, totally. Crazy. It's crazy. He is crazy. So here's just another thing I wanted to mention for sure when we were talking about this article, which is, I feel like there's always a thing that an article like this makes me think of another way that um, it just made me think of another way that I've seen consumers criticize artists that I thought was unfair. Um, And I just want to say for the record that I actually really love this idea of artists releasing deluxe albums. And I think that's just another way that they have formed to bring in more income but it's actually a way they still keep the integrity of releasing a body of music i've seen a lot of people complain about artists putting out these deluxe copies of music during the year after releasing a regular album but it gives them the opportunity to release a completed body of work and then also do the thing where they released like a playlisty style album to increase their streaming revenue And I feel like that's kind of the opposite side of things where people are criticizing not as much for like the financial access, but for the artistry. So artists get it from every which direction, whether it's like you're not a true artist enough or you're not giving me this for a cheap enough price. Well said. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Agree. Shouts to the deluxe albums. 
Shout out to Deluxe Album, shout out to this piece from New York Times. How much is the album worth in 2020? $3.49, $77, $1,000, maybe $0 by John Karamanica. And shout out to a piece about Rap Ferreira where the <laughs> where the writer knew exactly what they were going to say and had a streamlined idea of what they were doing unlike my piece about Rap Ferreira where I was changing it every five seconds and I had like 25 drafts of it as Mickey knows <laughs> right shout out <laughs> shout out my own piece <laughs> okay Let's transition to the last piece. All right. Nikki, Ryan's piece is available for $77. <laughs> uh, there you go. Kidding. There you go. Kidding. Straight off this piece, Small we're going to start joke. charging exactly $77 for all of our article dealing. Then people get real mad. All right. Yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> yeah. So uh, my piece is entitled, uh, Super Producer Mark Batson opens up about his new age album and work on detox. And it is an interview on hiphopandmore.com by Nav Josh, who is the creator of that website. Um, Nav Josh, uh, I found out about him just from kind of circulating my, my Twitter feed um, he's kind of a social media updater extraordinaire. And one thing that he does that is particularly interesting, and he's kind of found a lane for himself in, which kind of ties back into the previous episode when we're talking about radio, is he continually updates um, people on Twitter about uh, radio play from artists, like who is number one in urban radio and who's kind of climbing the charts in radio, which I think is a really uh, specifically interesting thing to highlight that doesn't get highlighted really by anyone else. Um, but I, I really appreciate Nav Josh for um, um, creating this this website um, as well and creating a, a blog that highlights so many different um, facets of the music industry and so many different types of artists. Um, the thing that he does, and again, me and Joshua talked about this, I don't remember if it was on the last podcast or just separately, um, the importance of highlighting a behind-the-scenes voice. Um, that's the most uh, impressive thing to me about this article um, is finding um, finding someone whose whose voice hasn't been um, broadcast journalistically and really really having a solid conversation so people will have a greater uh, appreciation of what they the work that they've put in in the music industry and um, to kind of shout out I guess another another ISOS episode that's something that I personally really admire about the early days of Elliot Wilson and B dots rap radar podcast where they would, they interviewed people like um, DJ Esco that we talked about on that podcast episode. And like the manager, the guy who manages future YG and Nas, uh, they did a full episode on him and all a bunch of these behind the scenes people. And I think these pieces specifically um, are rare, hard to come by and wildly important. And I wish there were more of them. Um, the, the line specifically at the top of the piece that really caught me, um, from the beginning, which I think was very cleverly put in by Nav Josh was, if you're a fan who reads credits, remember how we used to refer to the term as liner notes on music releases often, you certainly must have come across the name Mark Batson. And I was like, okay, you got me. Uh, because I, another cool thing, and I'll shout out title on this too. Title has made it very easily accessible to look up all the credits on songs when they come out and see who That's the producers are, uh, which is really awesome. And a thing that since, 
I mean, when I was really young even and I was buying CDs specifically, I remember going into the liner notes on CD cases and actually looking at who was producing the songs. And um, unfortunately, at that point in time, I didn't really like know how to navigate the internet, so I couldn't really look up who these people are. But I remember kind of clocking notes in my head of who these people were who are working on the music. Even going back to when I like opened up the Backstreet Boys Millennium album and was looking and saw um, like Max Martin on there. Um, but yeah, I, I just think that that was a really great hook for me specifically to highlight someone who's like, oh God, I just keep see the, seeing their name coming up as being kind of an obsessive. Like, I feel like I am looking at the credits on album releases and being like, oh, I got to look after this guy. And I specifically even did it recently when I was, as I talked about on the previous episode, going through Luther Vandross's discography and found the bassist Marcus Miller, who, if you haven't heard of him, he's a good person to look up. But anyway, before I go off on a crazy tangent, um, back to the piece a little bit. Uh, so he really, uh, I think now Josh through the interview and through the intro highlights, um, a lot of really great things about Mark Batson that are super interesting. Um, specifically that he's just the least talked about super producer in the world. And he spans the entirety of his catalog, which goes from an album that I really hold dear to me, which is, uh, India Ari's acoustic soul album all the way to like relapse by Eminem. Um, yeah, that's just an album that my mom used to play in the house growing up a lot. Like the song, uh, strength, courage, and wisdom will always have like a very special place in my heart. And I personally did not know that Mark Batson had anything to do with that. So it was really cool to hear him talk about it. Um, and then the last thing I'll mention before I'll open it up, because I know I've been talking for a while, um, is the, the thing that I thought, uh, Nab Josh really did a good job of highlighting through the interview, which was uh, both of their mutual respect for hip hop itself, which I think is becoming a very common theme for this podcast specifically. Um, and he uses this really great um, Yo-Yo Ma example to legitimize hip hop. So I'll just read this quote and then I'll open it up. I knew that different styles could be appreciated if presented in the right context. I bring that sensibility and respect to every art form and consider Eminem in some ways to be parallel to Yo-Yo Ma in talent. I've collaborated with both of them and both are supremely dedicated to the highest level of performance and emotion. And I think that's just such a, from someone who specifically we talked about has been coming up in liner notes for so many years, such an important distinction uh, to make to legitimize hip hop itself and uh now i'll open it up and ask you guys what you thought yeah i mean i think mark batson is incredible and you know he mickey you and i have talked about how we have this affinity towards the people behind the scenes and we are big credit readers and maybe that's a, largely because that's where all of us live as writers right or producers or managers or people in marketing but i think my favorite part of the piece was i think they asked him a question about why he decided to go this route for his first solo album and he says something like i think the first line is these stories were from my head from my heart to my head mm -hmm. to my voice and for me that was really big because it's usually the people that have had this illustrious career that none of us know <laughs> about that are so in it it's very hard for them to spend that public facing time and that becomes the sheer difference between them and the artist right it's it's not usually a skill based or a vocal ability based difference but then you think back to sort of like he's responsible for some of the most incredible songs we've heard spanning now our parents generations and ours and it reminds me of someone like linda thompson who many people don't know besides being caitlin jenner's previous wife or Brody jenner's mom now but was an incredible songwriter and had to do with whitney houston's i have nothing or wrote for the backstreet boys and 
it's sort of like this ode to songwriters for the first time in a really mm-hmm. long time in a very specific way. Yeah. Ryan, what did you think? Uh, I think when you interview someone who has done such little interviews and has been around for so long, there's a couple traps you can fall into. You can fall into the trap of simply ignoring all the past stuff and just talking about the album that they've released recently mm-hmm. or you can fall into the trap of just saying oh what did you what's working with dr dre like what's working with this person like what's working with this person like? <laughs> right. and i think now josh did a great job of balancing those things like totally. getting those stories about dr dre and like 50 cent making him laugh so hard it's like rolling on the floor in the studio i thought that was cool and <laughs> and like getting inside his mind as a creative then and now and why this album exists yeah. and the main thing that i got from it was kind of mark batson having this recent re artist like artistic reawakening yeah. like he, he has a quote he says um i decided that i may not rap as good as my favorite rapper or play as good as my favorite pianist but i can damn sure play piano better than my favorite rapper and rap better than my favorite pianist yeah like he kind of realized his niche and created something only he could create and that's like kind of this reawakening he had yeah and just a realization of his artistry and there's a line at the end he said um in relation to artists like we are healers and evolutionary thinkers yeah and i think that just sums up like where he is right now uh, I just think the the thing that really stuck out to me about him throughout uh, was his understanding, like you're kind of talking about, Ryan, of his lane and not mm-hmm. really producing things unless he really feels useful in the production of them. Um, and Absolutely. he ta- he kind of reminisces on that period of, of uh, Dr. Dre, Eminem, 50 Cent aftermath period. Um, of having this such specific sound that he was contributing to heavily um, and how some it hasn't really existed since then. So I feel like he's kind of strayed away a little bit from that space. And I this is just like a kind of sidebar, but that I found really interesting. Literally the other day, a friend of mine sent me uh, just like a link of Till I Collapse by Eminem and Nate Dogg. And he was like, God, does music sound like this at all anymore? And I had just read this piece and I was like, no it doesn't and it's because this guy and dr dre are not making this music together anymore and it's so crazy that you just sent me that i think there's something so human about mark batson and i think when we're interviewing musicians or celebrities or famous creatives we assume like as consumers that they must have this ethereal power or they must not have these conflicts, even though we know that they do, but he describes himself with such ease and grace when he's answering these questions. And there's no conflict there. Whereas a writer, I would really struggle with how much of his past to bring up, how much of the current album, do you treat him like an artist and make it all about his art and this album? Do you not address the other things? And I would be fangirling the whole time and losing my mind. But so I really, I thought the way it was written was, exceptionally well and my favorite my favorite part of the entire piece is the very last line where he says if i inherited a trillion dollars today i would be doing exactly what i'm doing now just on a larger scale because i think a lot of us don't think about that like for many of us it's making ends meet or whatever career growth or clout or what have you but i always think to myself like am i doing something i love enough that i would just be doing it with more ease or on a larger scale and clearly he is well, Jeshima, that would mark the uh, third time that you have taken the quote right out of my mouth <laughs> right before I was about to say it. It's been one time in every single piece. And uh, yeah, that was uh, definitely the, the thing. 
You guys can't see it, but I'm shrugging my shoulders. <laughs> I know. It's, it's funny. Well, yeah, I, I think we've also just had um, at least two pieces a day with really, um, really kind of powerful closing quotes and um, that kind of sum up the piece as a whole. So that's really, you know, shout out to the writers for doing that. Shout out to writers. Great set of pieces. Yeah, I really enjoyed this episode. Yeah, and I'm su- I'm surprised we didn't talk for like ten hours about it. So yeah, <laughs> well done us for being concise. <laughs> right. Okay, so if everyone's happy on that piece, anything else, Dad? No, I'm solid. I I I mean, I wanted to end on that quote. Um, unless we have five hours. Then <laughs> no. no, I was saying I wanted to end on that quote anyway. So okay, so that was super producer Mark Batson opens up about his new age album and work on detox by nav josh and that was for what publication mickey that was for hiphopandmore.com hiphopandmore.com i think that's the first time that we featured them on the uh on the podcast so shout out to them yeah uh if you're a writer with an unknown publication that we have not featured on the podcast please send us your writing there's a good chance we will love it because we like words <laughs> um <laughs> other than that leave us comments reviews all that stuff check out the christina lee interview that we just did yeah. check out if this is your first episode check out all the episodes because they're all good and yeah you guys want to sign off okay. go ahead mickey she's just, she's just trying to be the closer today she closed out my own piece for me and she's trying to close <laughs> out the whole episode <laughs> i was just trying to let him say his quote before i took all right, it away jo- from him joshima aka mariano rivera in the house for all the baseball fans <laughs> it's okay i'll be the i'll be the eighth inning guy um yeah thanks for listening that's all i really wanted to say things have been extra saucy on this week's episode and hopefully you can hear mickey and i have a pun off one of these days <laughs> but until then see you next time thanks for listening that would be its own four-hour episode oh, i love that okay see you guys in the next one thanks for listening episode of In Search of Source featured Jashima Wadara, Mickey Hellerback and Ryan Gore of the Central Source Crave Collective. The episode is edited by me, Charlie Taylor of the Fifth End Podcast Network. Music for the show is fucked up by Basti. Thanks to Joe Perkins for the ability to use. This has been Central Source from Fifth End Podcast Network Production. Thanks to Basti, Joe Perkins, Central Source, the development and content covering the episode can all be found in the full show notes below. Thanks for listening and we hope to see you next time as we continue our search for Source. <laughs>